So nice to see many of you today. We're going to continue a series, a sermon series that we started a few weeks ago now called Walking with God. I hope this has been a blessing for you already. It has been for my soul. And we want to continue this today because it's a several week series. I think it's something I just need to be fleshed out in my own mind and heart. And I hope it's the same for you. And so God has brought me on this journey of walking with God and what that looks like. And so here's the lessons we've done so far in our series. We started with created. We then talked about the covenant of God. Uh, parts one and two and being invited into covenant. And then last week we talked about being saved from, from sin. This week we're going to do saved part two. I told you last week we might do a part two to that last week. And so we are. We're going to talk about being saved part two today. And that's where we're headed. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles, you can jump over there. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to talk about being saved, part two. And we'll get to the text here in a minute. But did anyone ever make a prediction about your life or what you might do when you were younger, what you might do when you grew up? Anyone ever do that for you? Um, when I was little, my brother and I played baseball, Little League baseball. And we liked baseball. We liked watching baseball. It just seemed like a natural fit. Um, the only problem is we were really bad at baseball. <laughs> I remember my mom coming to me one day and saying, Todd, if you don't practice baseball, we're not coming to your games anymore. <laughs> that actually happened. That was quite inspiring for my mom to say that. Um, and so I did the honorable thing. I quit. <laughs> That'll show her. Actually, I think that saved the whole family, right? From having to watch more baseball because we were really, really bad. Well, my, my dad, honestly, this actually happened when he was younger. He was in an English class and had a composition paper that he wrote, and he got back not, not only a good grade, he got an A-plus on his paper, but his teacher actually said, you should consider being a writer. That's how good my dad was at writing, even from a young age. So someone made a prediction about his life, and it actually came true. My dad was the author of 13 books, and uh, that prediction came true. Well... Who, let's ask another question. Who here likes Chinese food? Chinese food. Oh, my word. Well, we know the next potluck, guys. Chinese food night is coming. Everybody likes Chinese food. You know, at the end of Chinese food, at the end of takeout, what's the last thing they give you, the last thing you eat? Fortune, fortune cookie, right? Fortune cookie. And you open that little fortune cookie, it has a little fortune about your life. Anyone ever get an interesting one, interesting fortune they want to share? No? Nobody? <laughs> well, that day's over. Because I'm going to give you the worst messages to receive in a fortune cookie, okay? These are messages you don't want to hear in a fortune cookie, okay? Now, I don't know if any of these actually exist. I hope they don't. Um, because if you get these messages in a fortune cookie, your life is not going well. Number one, worst message you don't want to hear in a fortune cookie is, that was your last meal. I hope it was tasty. <laughs> yeah, yikes. I don't know what's going on there. But you don't want to hear that in your fortune cookie. Number two, I don't want anything thrown at me for this one. Worst messages to receive in a fortune cookie, number two, the poo-poo platter comes with its own fortune. <laughs> you can figure that one out on your own. Number three message you don't want to hear in a fortune cookie is now you're eating a cookie, you fatty. I don't want my cookie judging me, okay? We don't need anybody judging me while I eat my cookie. How about this bad message to receive in a fortune cookie? Tapeworms are real and Chinese restaurants are not known for their cleanliness. That would be bad, right? That would not make you feel good. How about this message in a fortune cookie? If you read this out loud, you'll be dead in an hour. Whoa, something's going on there. That'd be horrible if you just read that out loud and then you go, oh no. How about this one? Worst, worst message is to receive in a fortune cookie. Only one cat was harmed in the making of that meal. I, you can't say that. That's horrible. 
Where would that even come from? I mean, you know the joke of Chinese food is that possibly, possibly it's not exactly the meat you think it is. How about this one? Number seven, worst message to receive at a fortune cookie. Hi, Todd. I'm watching you. Always. That would be terrifying, especially if your name's Todd. If not, you're off the hook. Number eight, worst message to receive at a fortune cookie is the person you're eating with tonight is not who you think they are. Especially if you're eating alone, Aaron. That's when it gets really weird. <laughs> Number nine, worst message to receive in a fortune cookie. It's adorable that you think you just ate chicken. <laughs> yeah, that's gross. And number 10 is a little bit specific. Worst message to receive in a fortune cookie. All the moose are dead and it's your fault. Go back to Pennsylvania, you flatlander. <sighs> I don't want to hear that in my fortune cookie. That would be a bad day. Sometimes there are predictions made about our life. We're actually going to talk about one that, that's going to start a little bleak, okay? And it's not going to end that way, so I need you to hang in with me today. But according to Scripture, there's a prediction made about our life, and it's really tragic, that our destiny is eternal death. Did you know that? Our destiny, as we start this life, is eternal death. And we're going to talk about that today because, again, that's not how it's going to end. We're talking about being saved today. If you have your Bibles, join me in 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read verses 20 to 26 today. Hear the word of God. The Apostle Paul speaking, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen? That's where we're headed today. Saved part two. We have a three-point outline. Hopefully you got the sheets. We're going to talk about number one, a significant truth. Number two, a strange parallel. And number three, a stunning finale. That's where we're going today. Let's start with a significant truth. A significant truth. Now I want you to think back. And I know this is going to be difficult, a difficult task to do. Because I'm going to ask you to, to think back more than a decade in your life. Did, did anything significant happen to you in November of 2013? Think back. You do? You have something? Get out of here. Your birthday. You were born in 2013? You look fantastic for your age. What's that? It happened. There we go. That's significant. Well, we had something significant happen in the Walker family, and I'm going to share it with you today, okay? Now, before I put this up, because I'm going to put up a video today, and I have to set it up. Um, I know now what you're thinking when you see that video, because I have eight kids, and when I tested the audio for this, um, Tammy Tida upstairs said, is baby nine on the way? That's exactly what she said. And I said, Tammy, that didn't even dawn on me. Um, no, that's not what I'm announcing today. Baby nine is not on the way as far as I know. Um, but I do have to set this video up because <laughs> this is important. This happened in November of 2013. Now, maybe if you do the math, you can figure out what I'm about to tell you today. In November of 2013, now we have a, a little bit of a sad part to this story as well because in August of 2013, we miscarried. 
We had one son, Haddon, we got pregnant again and then miscarried right away, and that was really tragic. Of course, if anyone's gone through that, it's a very sad thing to endure. But only a month later, we found out we were pregnant again. And so as we did with, most, with all our pregnancies, you go in and they eventually do an ultrasound. Well, the doctor that we had at this moment in Michigan did an ultrasound every visit. So he just had one right in his room, and every time we went, he did an ultrasound. So he did an ultrasound really early on our next pregnancy when we found out we were pregnant in October, I think it was. And so by the time we went in November for our next visit, he hooked us up to the ultrasound machine. And this is going to set up what I'm about to show you right now. I hope the audio is going to work on this because um, it's going to make it really better if you can hear this and see this. But what's going to happen is you're going to find out live the news that we're finding out we're having identical twins. And I'm recording this. He's not only doing an ultrasound, but he's letting me record it. And you're going to see my reaction, our reaction, mostly mine, to the news that we're having identical twin boys. And it's quite humorous because I just keep saying one phrase over and over and over. It's not a four-letter word, by the way. Because um, I couldn't do that as a pastor. Well, let's play this and see if you can... It's going to jump right into it, so just be ready. It's a little technical there. We'll shut it off. Because <laughs> it, it keeps going and going. But you get the gist, right? I mean, hey, that doctor was legendary. Can you tell? That doctor was a legend. Um, just the way he described that to us, it was so, it was so great. Um, but that was a shocking piece of news. If you look back behind my, my sister and my mom, my identical twins are sitting back there. And guys, it was a pretty cool video, right? That's when we found out we were having you guys together. And uh, it's been a wild ride ever since because having twins, there's nothing like it. So that, that's a day we'll always remember. Thankfully, we had it recorded so we can look back anytime we want. I hope that was an enjoyable experience for you. But maybe you don't remember what happened exactly in that month because time goes fast. But I'm guessing you remember what happened in this year, um, AD 33. Now, not because you were there. I'm not making a statement about your age. 
But if you know history, you know exactly what that year was about. What happened in AD 33? Who wants to take a guess? Something significant. Jesus was crucified. That's right. And what else happened? That's right. Three days later. That was the year they believe, and they're pretty accurate on this, that Jesus died and rose again. That's a significant year, isn't it? That's a significant mark in history, whether you believe in Jesus or not. That is a historical event, and we're going to talk about that today. Because Paul brings this up in 1 Corinthians 15. He starts by saying, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, we are jumping into the middle of a conversation here. And that's what's difficult when you don't go through the entire book. But I've, I've encouraged you along the way that when you're reading the scripture is to keep it in context and to have some understanding of what's going on when you're reading the Bible. So we're going to do that a little bit today to help us understand why Paul is even bringing this up. Because he says, but in fact, Paul, what are you talking about and why are you saying what you're saying? If you go to the verses right before this, this is what Paul's saying because he's having a, a monologue, but he's almost answering a question that is in the minds of some. So he says in verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which we do proclaim, don't we? We do declare that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now who says that? Now of course there's people in our culture who would claim resurrection is possible, but he's referring to a very specific group of people here. Maybe you guys have heard of these people. It was a sect of Judaism called the Sadducees. Everyone say that name. It's fun to say. Sadducees. Yes. They were slightly different than the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees often get lumped together. But they honestly, because of a couple points of doctrine, this being one of them, they disagreed a lot. The Pharisees believed in resurrection. The Sadducees said it's impossible. There is no resurrection. There could be no resurrection. And so the Pharisees butted heads with these people. Jesus butted heads with these people. And here Paul is sort of answering the statement or the question of some who negate the possibility that there could be a resurrection from the dead. And oftentimes we bring this up at Easter, right? This is a classic Easter passage. But um, in Matthew 22, 23, Jesus, speaking about the Sadducees, it said that same day the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. So these people point blank say there could not be a resurrection from the dead. And Paul in our passage today, is answering that question. So again, in verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Isn't that interesting? He keeps going on in verse 16, for the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Do you remember last week's lesson about being saved from our sins? If there is no resurrection, Paul says, that's impossible. You could not be saved from your sins if there's no resurrection. He says in verse 18, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And he means permanently. If in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because we're surrendering our life to follow Jesus. And if there is no resurrection from the dead, then it's all vanity. It's all useless. None of it makes any sense. None of it is going to lead to anywhere significant. If you remember the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is written by King Solomon. And King Solomon is taking us on this long monologue of, of what life is about. Really, I mean, that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. And King Solomon is telling us 
from the mountaintop of, of experiencing everything in this life that you could possibly experience. He had riches. He had power. He had women. He had money. He had palace. He had everything you could possibly want. He had wisdom. And Solomon got to the pinnacle of everything you could want in life. And he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes, telling us, all his readers, that everything is vanity. Everything in this life is vanity. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? All go to the same place, all come from dust, and they all return to dust. That's what our life is like if there is no resurrection from the dead. According to Paul, it is vanity, just like King Solomon said. So here's our question possible. Here's our question today, and I know this question is preaching to the choir, because I believe if you're sitting here today, then you believe in the resurrection. But is resurrection possible? Because we declare not only is it possible, but it's foundational to our whole faith. If the resurrection didn't happen, the entire, you, you pull that one string, the entire thing unravels, doesn't it? So this is the question we need to answer before we move on. Is resurrection possible? And I thought no, way, no better way to answer this, if my screen will come up, is by going to another classic. Nope. Come on. There we go. John 11 is where Jesus' friend Lazarus is resurrected from the dead. Now, I don't have the time to tell this story, but I will set this up a little bit. In this passage, Jesus has a close friend named Lazarus, and he's very sick. And Jesus is given word that his friend Lazarus is very sick, but Jesus ends up staying two days longer where he is, and Lazarus ends up dying. By the time Jesus makes his way to where Lazarus is, Lazarus has been dead for how long? Four days. Now, according to Jewish tradition, they would have believed that the spirit of a person would remain in the body for up to three days. Okay, so three days, maybe hope would still be there if the spirit is within their body. But by, this, by the time Jesus comes to Lazarus, it's day number four. They would have believed all hope was lost at this point. So we pick up the reading here in John chapter 11. Jesus is encountering Lazarus' sister, Martha. And in verse 23, it says, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, Martha, she's thinking that Jesus is speaking sort of into the future of what's to come. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus' response to her is interesting. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is what he said to Martha in her response of saying, I know he will eventually rise from the dead. Jesus says to her, as long as he has me, he has life forevermore. This is what we're talking about today. This is how foundational and important it is that we have life and something to look forward to, is that Jesus Christ is what he said he is. So Jesus eventually comes to the tomb and he asks them to do a strange thing. He says, I want you to take the stone that's in front of his tomb and I want you to roll it out of the way. Okay, that's a very bizarre thing to say for a man who's been dead for four days. But Jesus said, do it. Take the stone and roll it away. And then we pick up the reading here, verse 43. It says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, I want you to imagine being there, okay? What are you thinking at this moment? The man has been dead four days. Jesus says, roll the stone away. You've never seen anybody resurrected. This has never happened, okay? You can't chronicle and go, oh, yeah, I remember this happened once. This has never happened. So when Jesus rolls the stone away and yells into the tomb, this is probably a very bizarre thing to hear. But notice in verse 44, the man who had died came out, 
his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to him, unbind him. Unbind him and let him go. He's not dead any longer. And this is our first experience. This is Martha and Mary's and the crowd who's there, first experience of resurrection. I know this is Lazarus' first experience coming back from the dead. But there we have an example of that. And again, I was able to find a real picture of that event, thankfully. <laughs> Google's amazing. I mean, unbelievable. Lazarus stumbling out of the tomb there. But imagine being Lazarus in that scene, being dead for four days, and then coming out of the tomb, walking back out and grappling with the concept that you were dead and now you're alive again. And it's all a credit to who? To Jesus. And that story actually happened. That's a true story. That's not a parable. That's not hypothetical. That is a true, factual, historical story of Jesus resurrecting his friend Lazarus. So again, we go back to our passage here in 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul brings it up again. He says, If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If resurrection is impossible, then our Lord can't resurrect either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Wow. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There is no hope. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Isn't that interesting? That the resurrection is so foundational to our faith that if you take that one truth away, we have nothing. We have nothing more than the people of this world. And so Paul is basically saying this one truth is the catalyst for our whole faith. Christ is not risen. Our preaching is empty. My preaching makes no sense today. And our faith is also empty. Our faith is useless. If the resurrection is not possible. <laughs> now, I think I've shared this before, but I just want you to, to think about this concept for a minute. What good would a dead lifeguard be? Um, now, it looks on the left. I'm hoping this guy's not dead. I'm hoping he's just taking a nap. But it did kind of represent what I was going for here today. And there's actually a book. I, I cannot recommend this book. I know nothing about this book. I only know the title of the book. It's quite interesting. It's called The Dead Lifeguard. The Dead Lifeguard. Now, that's an interesting title for a book that almost makes you want to read it. But again, I can't recommend it. Could be a good book. Could be a bad book. I just love the tagline here. I don't even know if you can see that. But the tagline says, no one can save her now. <laughs> it's true. I mean, if, if there's a dead lifeguard and there's trouble in the water, she's probably in big trouble. But think about that concept. What good would a dead lifeguard be? Okay, you're going in the water. You know, maybe you're a great swimmer. Maybe you're not a great swimmer. But there's a lifeguard. You know, there's someone there that if something's going to go down, you're, you're okay. He's going to come in and save you. Unless the lifeguard's dead. If the lifeguard's dead, what hope do you have? And that's kind of where Paul is going to say, our Savior must be alive, right? We must have an alive Savior if we are to have hope beyond the grave. That's a very simple but profound statement that he's making. If our Savior, our Lord, is dead, what good is our faith? What good would it be if you could visit Israel and just like King Tut's tomb... You could go into the tomb where Jesus was and you could find his mummified body. Now, it might be an interesting thing to see, going, boy, he was a really powerful, profound person that died, and we can go visit his tomb. But can you visit the body of Jesus Christ? No, you can't, because it's not there. There's no body of Jesus Christ upon the earth. His body was resurrected, and then he ascended back to heaven. And so his tomb, whether you can find it or not, is empty. It's a very profound thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Ironically, the only thing that's empty is the tomb. Amen? 
But Paul's going all in. I don't know if you guys are card players, but this concept of going all in is when you take your chips, you take your money, put it in the center of the table and say, I'm all in. My hand is that good. Paul's going to do that here today. Okay? He's going to say, my hand is so good that I'm going to push everything to the center of the table. And I'm going to believe that resurrection is true, did happen, and therefore we have hope beyond hope. He's going to push all his uh, chips to the center of the table. And he's going to rise and fall on that one truth, that resurrection is possible. So we pick up the reading there in verse 20. This is our first verse. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen? It's historical. It's a fact. Okay? This isn't contrived. This isn't a hoax. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, in a courtroom setting, this is the, one of those powerful things that you can find in a courtroom is a first-hand witness, correct? That's one of the most powerful pieces of evidence that you can find in a courtroom. If someone comes up to the courtroom and says, I saw it, I heard it, I was there, I can put the person there, I can put the time there, I have the actual events and I can record them and I can give you first-hand witness. That's a very powerful testimony. You could send people to jail or acquit people based on that one testimony of saying, I was there. So is Jesus expecting us, is Paul expecting us to believe it without first-hand witness of this account? No, of course not. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, if you bump all the way to the beginning of the chapter, Paul says this, For I deliver to you as of first importance. This is so important, so foundational. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, someone could pause there and go, well, yeah, according, of course your scripture is going to say that. Of course the Bible is going to say that because the Bible is supporting itself. So if the only evidence we have of the resurrection is the Bible, there would be some naysayers that say that's not enough for me to believe because it's written by your own text that you're saying is truthful. But he goes on in verse 5 to say, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And that says in verse 6, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive at that point when Paul is writing this, though some have fallen asleep. What's Paul saying? You can validate it. You can validate it. Jesus appeared to Cephas, to Peter, to the 12 disciples, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. I want you to imagine back in the courtroom setting, if not one person came up and said, I saw it happen. Not five people came up and said they saw it happen. Not 20 People came up and saw and said they happened. But 500 people in a row, one after another, said, I saw Jesus alive after he was crucified. Do you think that would be powerful to hear? 500 people telling the exact same story. I saw him walking. I saw him talking. I saw his wounds. Three days after he was dead, he was alive again. Paul is saying it can be validated. Go talk to those people. They're still alive. That's powerful, isn't it? That sets this from theory and hoax to absolute fact. And if you remember, one of Jesus' disciples had to grapple with this concept, didn't he? He has probably the worst nickname of all time. I'm going to be honest. What do we call this guy? Doubting Thomas. Not handsome Thomas. <laughs> Courageous Thomas. Loyal Thomas. No, that's not his nickname. Doubting Thomas. How would you love that nickname for the rest of eternity? That's a horrible nickname. Now, I believe Thomas is a saint, and he's going to be with us in heaven, and he did redeem himself. But this is, this is Thomas grappling with this concept, going, I mean, really? Jesus is alive? I mean, I know he was powerful, and he was a great teacher, 
but he's alive? I'm, I'm not going to believe unless I'm able to put my hands in his marks. If I could see the nail prints, if I could put my hand in his side, I won't believe. And Jesus could have said to him, well, then forget you, Thomas, because I am the Lord, and I don't need to validate myself anymore to you. You saw the miracles, you heard the teaching, you saw everything that took place in my ministry. But did Jesus do that? No, he let him. He appeared to Thomas, and he said, Thomas, do what you need to do to validate it. And he was able to stick his hands into the side of Jesus and see the marks on his hands and feet. And Thomas realized, wow, that resurrection is not only possible, but it's foundational to my faith. So Paul again says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Notice this phrase, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits is a farming term, okay? That would have been like the first of your crop. Paul's saying that Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the first fruits, the first of the crop of everyone who has fallen asleep. Now, he's not speaking chronologically because we know that John 11 came before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Lazarus was actually raised from the dead before Jesus chronologically, but not in the redemptive plan, right? In the redemption, in the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ and of God the Father, Jesus Christ is the one who was to be resurrected before anybody else. This is what was to set the stage for everyone else to have hope in this life, is that our Lord, our Savior, would die and would rise from the dead. And Paul's saying, therefore, he's the first fruits. And now God is doing something remarkable. God is putting his own name and glory upon this truth. That's really powerful when that happens. When God makes a statement that is so clear, so obvious, that God says, if this isn't true, then I'm a liar. God's name is upon this truth that Jesus resurrected from the dead. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, the writer said this, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have this hope fled to take hold of this hope before us may be greatly encouraged. That's the goal of God declaring this fact, declaring this truth, and then putting his own name upon it that I cannot lie. Therefore, when I put my name on top of this, it is a promise of God, it is a surety, it is a fact, and we can base our entire lives on it because God cannot lie, can he? No matter what, you and I can. We can make promises, we can break them. God cannot make a promise and break it. If God makes a promise, he will stand by it. So that's a significant truth. Let's now go to a strange parallel because there is a strange parallel Paul brings up. Now I'm going to show you a slide, and I want you, besides the Walkers, if your last name's Walker, you can't ask, answer this question, okay? Does anyone recognize this town? Now, I, I have one hope that maybe someone in the tech booth can, um, but I'm going to let the audience just sit on this. Does anyone recognize this town? It's not in New England. It's in the Midwest. That's a little hint for you. Anyone? You know, kind of know where I'm from, kind of know where I lived. Not in Pennsylvania, either. It, it is very close. You know what? I'm going to give you a point for that one because it's right down the road from Ann Arbor, Michigan. It is a town called... Ypsilanti. <laughs> Ypsilanti, Michigan. Ypsilanti, Michigan is where I was born. I have to state it, Mom, because I'm a pastor and I can't lie. I was born in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and so were my siblings. And this is a picture of Ypsilanti here, Okay. And this is the town that I was born in. We only stayed three years. I was only a three-year-old when we moved from Michigan. But why I bring this slide up is because it's interesting. Because in 1976, if I'm correct, my parents started their ministry in Ypsilanti, Michigan. They went to college in northeast Pennsylvania. 
and they got married. And my dad started his ministry in Ypsilanti, Pennsylvania, at a, at a church called Calvary Baptist Church in Ypsilanti. That, interestingly enough, is right next to a massive cow. <laughs> I don't know why it's next to a massive cow. There's a, there's a little uh, convenience store with a cow on top of it. And I remember that. There's one thing I remember about Ypsilanti as a three-year-old. Cow. Cow next to the church. And uh, it's a strange town, I'm not going to lie. In fact, it's such a bleak town, kind of, kind of high in crime, kind of not really exciting, that my parents would not let me tell people that I was born there. They said, it's a true, it's a true statement. I, it's absolutely true, isn't it, Christy? Christy can validate it. They said, listen, if anyone ever asks you where you're born, you say Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is the classy version of Ypsilanti. That's where the University of Michigan is. It's five miles down the road. We're not lying. It's close enough. So when people ask you where you're from, you tell them Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'm from the University of Michigan. I was basically born on the football field. And they'll believe you because they have to. There's no way you're going to tell people you're from Ypsilanti. Now, that was back in the day. Ypsilanti may be a little bit better than it was today. In fact, it's not because I was just there a little while ago. Um, the reason I bring this up is because in 1976, my parents started their ministry there. And uh, we always heard stories, these unbelievable, almost impossible to believe stories about Ypsilanti. And just one of those things that we'd always probably just be able to, you know, tell stories around the dinner table. But then something strange happened in 2007. I was called into young adult ministry to reach college campuses with the gospel. And I started to think and pray about where I would do such a thing. Like, where would you go to reach college students? And I couldn't help but think of Ann Arbor, Michigan, because of the University of Michigan. It was right there, a big campus. We loved Michigan. We rooted for their teams growing up. And I was going to visit Michigan in only a couple months because I had a friend who lived in the southern part of Michigan, and I was going to go visit him. My brother also lived in a town called Kalamazoo, Michigan. Maybe you've heard of that. And uh, so I had my brother, I was going to visit him in Kalamazoo. My friend lived in southern Michigan, and I was going to visit there in a couple months. And I said, well, that's a pretty good place to begin. If I'm going to do young adult ministry, maybe I'll start in Ann Arbor, and I'll just call a bunch of churches in the area and see if they need any help uh, with that kind of ministry. So I did. I had my dad's database. My dad gave me this huge database of churches in the area because he was from that area. And I went there, and I started calling all the churches in the area. Hey, do you need any help? Hey, I'm looking to serve in this ministry. Is there anything I can do to help you? I'm thinking of moving to the area. And I got a bunch of voicemails, a bunch of answer, machi answer machines, not a lot of callbacks. And I checked off all the churches on my database, all of them, except one. Guess which church I didn't call? <laughs> Calvary Baptist Church in Ypsilanti, Michigan, <laughs> the town I couldn't even tell people I was from. <laughs> I didn't want to go to Calvary Baptist Church in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Um, I didn't want to go for a couple reasons. I definitely didn't want to live in Ipsy. And I didn't want to go because my they knew my parents. I didn't want to name drop and then go, wait a minute, you're, you're Mel Walker's son? Well, of course you could come. We'll give you a million dollars. Come do whatever you want to do because my dad was a legend. Um, but I, I couldn't, I, I'm kind of OCD. I had to finish the list. And I said, you know what? A lot of people aren't even answering their phones these days. So I'm just going to call. This is 2007. I'm going to call, just check it off the list and just never call again. The, the moment I called the phone, I called the Calvary Baptist Church secretary. She picked up, shockingly. And I started to tell her what I'm going to do and what I'm hoping to do. And she said, you, she gasped. She goes, you are kidding me. She goes, you wouldn't believe this, but we have been praying for months that someone would come and lead this ministry. And I believe you're of God right now. And I'm going to call the deacons and they're going to call you back. It must've been 20 minutes. These guys call me back in 20 minutes. It's like, Hey, can you get on the plane today? Um, because we want to fly you in. It wasn't quite that fast, but it seemed that fast. And wouldn't you know it? 
in 2008, where did I move to? Ypsilanti, Michigan. At the same church, Calvary Baptist Church, and I locked eyes with that cow, and I said, hello, cow. Good to see you again. It wasn't good to see him, but honestly, it was, it was a great story, a really cool story, because I met my wife there. Um, we found out we were having identical twins. You saw that story. God did a profound ministry through us there. But that's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Like, you can't make that up. How did that story go that way? Well, Paul's going to bring up a very interesting parallel here. He says in verse 21, For as by a man came death. Who was he talking about? Who brought death to the world? It's Adam, the first man who ever lived. By a man came death. But then he says, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now, this is not a perfect parallel because two totally different things are taking place, but you could see why there's similarities, right? There's a man, and he brings death to mankind. There's another man, and he brings life to mankind. Do you see it? Do you see the parallel tracks? And Paul's doing that on purpose. He's saying one man brought death, another man brought life. He says in verse 22, for as in Adam, now we're a little bit more specific, now we know who he's talking about, in Adam, all die. Now, let's pause here. What he's telling us is in Adam, if you come from Adam, your destiny is dead. So if we went around the room, we'd have to go 100% of us are from Adam. Did you know that? We're all related in some way because all, we all go back to Adam. And then, you know, things happened with the flood there and God shook off most of humanity because they were evil and sinful. But guess who remained? Noah and his family. And guess who they're from? Adam. So you can literally trace our lineage all the way back to Adam. And therefore, he says, for an Adam all die. Now, there's a, that's that bad fortune cookie we brought up, right? That's our bad destiny. All die through Adam. But then he says this, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Isn't that cool? All meaning all who believe. Now, we validated that we're all from Adam because we all come from him one way or the other. But Christ, we have to be in Christ in order to find this hope that Paul is talking about today. We must believe. So again, Google, amazing, amazing. Who was, who was back there taking pictures of Adam and Eve? Because there's lots of them, and there's some that you shouldn't look at. But I got some from the neck up, thankfully. And uh, Adam and Eve, they, they were very photogenic back in the day. I found these great pictures of Adam and Eve, and this is where everything went down, right? Everything went bad. And I love the one on the left, because it looks like a cologne ad, you know? <laughs> Temptation <laughs> by Calvin Klein. <laughs> oh boy, we're having some fun. But honestly, it's 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 not funny. It we're making light of it, but it's it's not funny. What happened in the garden is is tragic, totally tragic, because death was brought to mankind. And did you know death was not originally a part of the story? What was a part of the story? Eternal life with our God. And in Genesis 3, this is the tragic story of what happens to all of humanity. In verse 17, this is after Adam takes the fruit, the forbidden fruit. He and his wife, Eve, they both eat of the fruit. And God finds out about it because you can't hide from God, can you? So in verse 17, this is what God's response is to Adam after he finds out he ate the fruit. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. That's the conclusion, the consequence of Adam breaking the commandment of God. Death. Death. It was not originally part of God's plan. Life, eternal life with God was his plan. But because Adam forsook the commandment of God, he brought death to mankind. And they were kicked out of paradise, weren't they? Kicked out. No longer could stay in the Garden of Eden where everything was perfect and serene. Had to be kicked out of the garden. An angel with a flaming sword is there to protect it from them going back. And death was brought to mankind. That was the curse of sin. Now we talked about last week how we're saved from sin. And the wages of sin is what? Death. But being saved from sin is only half of the story. We must be saved from death as well. And now coming back to our passage in Romans 5. Or sorry, this is Romans 5 now. I want to interject Romans 5 if my screen will come up here. Romans 5 is, again, another passage based on the same concept we're talking about today. Paul is the same writer. And I want to bring this up because it helps us understand just how far this sin spread. He says in verse 12 of Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Do you notice that? Now that's an epidemic, isn't it? That's a pandemic. Every single person who ever sinned, their destiny is what? Death. Is there anybody in this room who has never sinned? No. Is there anybody in this world who has never sinned? The answer is no. So what's our destiny? According to Romans 5.12, death, because the wages of sin is death. Now, thankfully, that story goes on. He says for in verse 13, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was of the one who was to come, a type of the one to come. There's the parallel that Paul's bringing up, the foreshadowing of one that is to come that is going to change the whole culture of death upon the world, upon mankind. And I had Josh read this for scripture reading. We, we've talked about this many times before. But death was where we were living before Jesus came to our lives and to our souls. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Paul says in Romans 5 that death came to all men because all sinned. Death, death, death. I mean, we could actually put our name there. And it's not even physical death he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about eternal death. The wages of sin is not physical death only, but permanent, eternal separation from our God. That is our destiny. Unless someone comes to change it. Every single one of us. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Dan, aren't you thankful for that comma? My goodness, what a powerful comma there. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Meaning, possibly, that death is not the end of our story. Death is not how things end for us. Death is not the final chapter. Yes? Correct? I hope you believe that's true, because it is true, according to Scripture. Because one man came to change the entire narrative, didn't he? And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And he came to this earth to change 
our destiny. To change it from death to life. And he did it by one single profound act of dying on the cross and then raising from the dead three days later. He says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, all who come from Adam die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. As long as you're in Christ, death is no longer your train. Because how did this happen? How did we get from one to the other? How did we go from the the wages of sin is death, and all sin, and therefore all die, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and now we've drunk tracks to the one led by our Lord Jesus Christ that's all about life? Because we have to, right? We have to. We have to go from death to life. We can't just say, hey, listen, I, I hope that's my reality. We'll see what happens. That's not good enough. We have to know that we can change our pathway from death to life. Thankfully, God knows this. And according to Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5, another passage Josh read, it says, But God, being rich in what? Mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God, by his mercy, by his love, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What's the answer to the question? How did we go from death to life? God. His mercy. His love and his son, Jesus Christ, is what caused us to go from one track to the other. Here we find it again in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter writing now, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is all to their credit, all to their glory. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There it is. That's the answer to the question. How did we receive life? How did we jump from one train to the other? God's mercy given to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The fact that our Savior died and raised again and that he came with God's mercy to grant it to us who believe. That's the answer to the question. How did we go from death to life? Let's finish on this, a stunning finale. How do you say that word, finale? Finale, I mean, emphasizing finale. Finale. You ever finished a really long race or journey or hike? Christy says no. Anyone else? <laughs> some of you are runners. Some of you are hikers. Some of you have done really long journeys like that. I, I, I don't know what it's like to run great distances. I'm not a long-distance runner. I haven't done a lot of hikes. I did a really long hike in Virginia that I was pretty proud of because I think it was like a quarter of a mile. It was pretty intense. The shin splints were there. It was bad. Uh, I haven't done a lot of hiking, but I have finished a journey before, and I want to sort of share this story with you, even though you know most of you know this story. This is a picture of fall of 2022 when you guys officially brought me on as your next lead pastor. And this is a really sweet picture. I love looking at this picture because it represents a new beginning, doesn't it? It's a beginning picture. And I love this picture. But there's a few interesting things about this picture that I want to point out before we move on. Number one, look how young story is. Amazing, right? How fast time can go. She's like, what, five months older? Something like that. Um, that's the first thing I noticed. Second thing I noticed, what's back here? The drum set. A foreshadowing of the drum set. We haven't had drums for months, guys. They're here today for the first time in months. But if you look back at the picture, the drums were up and a little foreshadowing took place. But I want you to notice something else. What am I doing? I'm smiling, if you can tell that. And it's prayer. Pastor Mark Clements is praying for me and establishing my ministry 
but I can't help smile. And there's a couple reasons I'm smiling. Number one, it was a fresh beginning and I, I just sensed the love in that room that day. But number two, you know why I'm smiling? I had finished a journey, a great, long, long, intense journey of possibly 30 to 40 interviews with churches all over the United States and a couple in Canada. And it took months to complete that journey. To arrive here in Littleton to be your pastor took months and months and months of agonizing prayer and conversation and going back and forth with God. So I'm smiling there because my journey in some sense was over. And that's a profound thing to know. In fact, I want to say before I get to my next illustration, I want to be able to say to this, and I mean this to you, if you guys ever want to look behind the curtain, I've journaled that journey. I really did. I journaled my journey. It's really long. It's really long, but it's only the tip of the iceberg. I only showed the highlights. If anyone ever wants to read that journey, I would let you. I can send you the digital version of it. You can read it. Um, it's, it's quite a cool thing about how God brought me here. If you ever want to read that, I would make that available to you. Please let me know. Now, here's something I probably will never do, and I'm not doing this today. I want to be very careful. I will never recommend movies, okay, up here, and I'm not doing that here today. I'm not, honestly. But maybe some of you have heard of this movie or seen this movie, and I've watched this movie, you know, about many times, but I watched it for the first time 20 years ago, and it's, it is quite an interesting movie. But what's interesting about this movie called The Village is that when they show you the trailer of this movie, it looks kind of like a really a horror movie. The way they depict this movie is that it's a really kind of scary, kind of crazy, kind of dark movie. And then when you watch the movie, a lot of people didn't like this movie. They rated it really low, and you know why they did? Because when you're watching the movie, it feels like a rom-com. It feels like a romantic comedy. It feels like something that's not exactly at all what they depicted. And so a lot of people didn't like that movie because they acted like it was one thing and then they kind of showed another thing. But what I like about this movie is, is the story. Because the story looks very dark from the beginning. Very dark. And they're just giving you little bits and pieces along the way. They're not telling the whole story at the beginning. But you're starting to understand what's taking place in this movie is that there's actually a village tucked inside of these woods. Okay? And it's almost been set back in like the 1800s. And these, these hundreds of people live in this little village and one thing's made abundantly clear. They're not supposed to go into the forest, into the woods, because there's creatures living in the woods, and these creatures could, could want them harm, and they're not supposed to go in the woods. The creatures are not supposed to go in the village. They have sort of a pact. And, but, but as you know, you know, people are stupid. So in the movie, every now and then, someone journeys into the, into the woods, and the creatures sort of come and let them know they don't like that. And so this whole movie, you're thinking, oh, at some point, these creatures and these people are going to go, this, this is going to go down. And it's going to get really bad and really scary and really ugly. And that's what you're thinking because they're leading you into that. Now, I'm going to spoil this movie, okay? It's 20 years old. Spoiler alert. If you haven't seen this movie, I'm about to ruin the ending. So if you want to see this movie and you haven't seen this movie, exit for like a minute. Come right back in. Because um, I'm about to ruin this movie. But it's 20 years old. You had your, you had your chance. Um, because what happens in this movie is quite shocking. They're painting this picture like, like, we have to stay where we are. We can't leave. But what happens is one of the people in the town get really sick. They get a really bad infection, and they don't have the medicine to take care of this person. And so they've told all these people that you can't go into the towns beyond the woods. You can't go into the woods because there's creatures. But one of the, one of the main girls who's blind talks the elders into letting her go to get new medicines for the man who has an infection. And they eventually decide to let her go because she's blind and they think they won't, she won't destroy um, the whole narrative of what's going on in that town. So she does. And here's the, what happens at the end of the movie. She goes into the woods and encounters a creature. Because they've been telling you this whole time that the creatures live in the woods. And she encounters this creature and ends up 
defeating this creature and going into the towns and, and basically saving the day because she gets this medicine and brings him back to this man and basically spares his life. But what they end up telling you at the end of the movie is that the creatures are fake. The creatures don't actually exist. It's just people in costumes. The elders have come up with this whole tale to basically safeguard everyone in the village from going to what they call are the evil towns. The next twist in the movie is that you realize that even though this movie is set in the 1800s, in modern day, everything's like 2004. And the town doesn't know it. The town is kept in this little shadow of this little village, and they think there's creatures, they think the towns are evil, so they never go into the towns. But at the end of the movie, all the cards are revealed to find out that the creatures aren't real and that the towns are just normal towns and that bad things can happen inside the village and bad things can happen in the town. And the whole thing was a lie. The whole thing was a fraud. But they were doing it to protect the people from what they believed were even more evil places. Why do I bring this up? Well, we talked about a, a very dark beginning to our destiny, right? The wages of sin is death. Our destiny is death. And it couldn't be more bleak than that. It could not be more bleak than God kicking us out of paradise, saying, be gone, you're cursed. From now on, I don't want to see you. I don't want to be with you. For the rest of time, be gone. And then telling us that every time you sin, you incur the wrath of God. But now Paul's telling us the narrative has changed. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He says in verse 23, but each in his own order. Number one, Adam brought death. Number two, Christ the first fruits brought life through his resurrection. And then he says, then, at his coming, at the coming of Jesus Christ, those who belong to Christ, what will be our scenario? Even if we die here upon the earth, will it be death? Because that's what Adam brought us. That's our destiny. But those who believe in Jesus Christ, is that our destiny now? Is it? Paul's telling us the opposite. According to the order of the way God has set it up, Adam brought death, Christ brought life, and everyone who believes in Jesus will also find life forevermore. That's an amazing finale. Verse 24, he says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Do you know that? Christ is going to defeat all the bad guys by himself. And he's going to use the church to do it. And that's an amazing thing to know. That when he hands the kingdom to God at the end, all the bad guys will be destroyed. Every single boss and every single level will be destroyed. Jesus will destroy them all according to his own power, his own might, his own authority. So by the time the kingdom of God is firmly and fully established, it is good and righteous forevermore. No darkness, no sin, no death forever. And this is why we sing songs like this at Crossroads Church. I love the lyrics of the song, Sing to the King. It says, we'll join in singing with all the redeemed. Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. He defeated Satan. He defeated Satan when he rose from the grave. Now, even though this is going to lengthen our sermon a little bit, I want to sort of give you a, um, a foreshadowing of what's to come in Revelation 19. Because in Revelation 19, this is a picture of the end. That's what Revelation is about. It gives you a peek through the window to see what's going to happen at the end. And so in Revelation 19, it says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one 
sitting on it is called faithful and true. Who's it talking about? Jesus Christ. And in righteousness, notice that he judges and makes war. Jesus Christ is going to make war on the last day. Interesting. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, I want you to picture Jesus this way, because this is not the picture Hollywood gives us of Jesus, okay? This is a different picture. This is the end times picture. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his heads are many diadems. That word means crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. You can tell this person on this white horse is in full authority. He has many crowns upon his head. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And the armies, notice it, the armies of heaven, because war is about to take place, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen and white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. All those who rejected him, all those who were against him, all his enemies, physical and spiritual alike, he will strike down with a sharp sword. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress. That actually means to like in the back of the day they would have stepped on the grapes and the juice would started to flow in the winepress. Jesus is going to do that with the wrath of God. He's going to get the juices going of the wrath of God. He's, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Whoa! Have you ever pictured this Jesus? Because I did until I was like 26 years old. And that was a different Jesus than I was ever told. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is how we know it's talking about Jesus Christ. This is the king. It's time to make war, and it's time for his team to win, and win handily. And even though this is strong imagery, and this is really hard to imagine what this looks like, what this is going to feel like, it's real, guys. It's prophecy. It's going to take place just as the Word of God says it's going to. And there's going to be two teams. There's going to be team death and team life. And everyone on team death is going to lose. And everyone on team life is going to win because they're with who? The King. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. And this is how Paul ends in verse 25. He says, For he, this Jesus, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And I love that. Because right now, Christianity, it kind of looks like it's losing steam, losing gumption, like maybe the other side's winning and Christianity is losing and the scoreboard doesn't really represent the victory. And so we're all getting a little depressed, a little anxious, going, God, it looks really bad in our culture. And this is Paul telling us today, hang on. Hang on. Because it's going to turn very quickly. Because Jesus Christ one day is going to take all of his enemies and put them under his feet and use them as a footstool for eternity. Everyone who rejected him, everyone who hated him, everyone who spoke against him, everyone who deceived Christians is going to be conquered. But we don't have to be, do we? We don't have to be. Because he came to give us life. And he says in verse 26, as we close, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When everything looks like it's the opposite. Death is winning, life is losing, Christians are going down, the unbelievers are going up. The Lord is going to come back and going to reveal his long-awaited plan. And Revelation is telling us what it's going to look like. And Paul's telling us what it's going to look like. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
And in Hebrews 2.15, it says that Jesus might free those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because that's what death does, isn't it? That's what death does. It's, it's like a slave camp. And it holds you down and it pins you down and it makes you feel hopeless. Like life doesn't matter. If, if there's only death on the other side, what does life matter? The answer is it doesn't matter if death is the only other option. But we're learning today that Jesus came to change everything, didn't he? Because it says in 1 Corinthians, our passage that we're looking at today, at the end of the passage, it says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? There is none. Because we have victory in Jesus. Simply because we believe and we follow him. Because he's the king, he's the author of life, he's the resurrection and the life, and he came to destroy every enemy, and death is the last one. And we get to stand with him in the last day. And this is the prophecy of what it says in Scripture. You will crush the serpent's head. And I believe Jesus did that most profoundly when he rose from the grave. Because the devil thought he had him. I crucified him. He's dead, he's buried. Christianity will now dissolve. It's over. Have a big party. And then three days later... The snake with all its bite, with all its venom, got crushed when Jesus arose from the grave. I, man, that's such a cool, powerful story to know. And we're, we're on the other side of this. We get to experience this and embrace this and believe in this. So what's the point today? Well, it's very simple. Number one, if we belong to Jesus, death is no longer our destiny. Eternal life is our destiny. Do you think that should change how you live? Do you think that should change every day of your life from here on out to the rest, to the last breath of your life, the fact that death is no longer your destiny, I think that should change every single part of how we live, think, and act. That one truth. That when this life dissolves, when my life dissolves, when my lungs give way, when I die, death is not my destiny, it's not my final chapter. Eternal life is. And it's all a credit to Jesus. And number two, if we are free from sin, we talked about that last week, and we are, if we are free from death in Jesus, and we are, if, if you're in Jesus, and you must be in Jesus, you must believe in him, you must follow him, you must surrender your life to him, if that is true, and I hope that it is true for you, therefore let us boldly stand up to the enemy and live for God's will through Jesus, because his head has been crushed. There's no bite, there's no sting, there's no venom, there's nothing that he can actually do to us. So why does it look like sometimes we're backpedaling and Satan is on the offense. Because we've allowed him to deceive us. We've allowed him to trick us into thinking that death is stronger than life. Is death stronger than life? Absolutely not, because Jesus proved it. When death had him held down, he defeated death. And he's telling us today that you are no longer enslaved to sin. You are no longer enslaved to death. Anything that I ask you, you can do, you will do, if you believe. And I want this church to believe. I want us to not only believe up here, I want us to believe with our hands and our feet and our actions and our thoughts and how we speak. I want us to get out there and make the devil surrender because we have Jesus on our team. And we will never be defeated. No matter what the enemy says, no matter what the enemy tries to do. There was a song, and dating myself, but I think it was the early 90s or maybe the 80s, a band called Petra. Remember that band? And they had a song called The Battle Belongs to the Lord. You guys remember that song? Anybody remember that song? And heavenly armor will enter the land. The battle belongs to the Lord. No weapon that's fashioned against us will stand. The battle belongs to the Lord. 
death. Jesus, right between the eyes. And what happens to death, it falls down dead. It can't, it can't overcome Jesus because he is the resurrection. He is the life, and we're on his team if we believe. And if you don't believe, today is the day. Today is the day. Not tomorrow, not next week, not when spring comes. Today is the day of your salvation if you think and believe that Jesus today is the resurrection because he is. And I want you to be encouraged today that you can stand up to the enemy today from the rest of your life and go forward in victory, in obedience, in submission to God because we're on the winning team. God has declared it. Let's not be living in fear anymore. Let's live in victory. All glory to God. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we, we can only say thank you. There's nothing that we deserve, Father. We don't deserve to have this reality changed for us. We don't have deserve, deserve to have life be given to us after rebelling and sinning against your will and against your name. Father, we don't deserve that, but you are a God who gives mercy and love where it doesn't belong and to people who don't deserve it. And we are those people, and we say thank you today that we can be on the team of Jesus Christ, that we can stand up to sin, stand up to death, go forward in victory, all because you made it possible. I pray for the souls in this room who may not know you, that they would today would see what is true, what is before them, and say, Jesus, you are the life giver, and I give my life to you for the rest of eternity. Father, I pray for the souls that you would do the work in the soul, and I pray for the rest of us that we would rise up and fight in love, in humility, in righteousness. Go forward for your will. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.